The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, Tammy, the fucking Sasquatch Underwood. I'm tired as shit and I'm hungry. Let's just get through this goddamn episode. Are you tired as shit? I am. I'm fucking exhausted. Aw, come on. Fucking voice still sounds like I'm waiting for my other nut to drop. I don't have two big-titted Asian girls in my fucking house. So, God. I'm telling you. The struggle's real. The struggle's real. Life sucks for you, doesn't it, big guy? The struggle's real. That's all I'm saying. The fucking struggle's real. Did you announce yourself? Yes. Yes, I did. I don't remember hearing it, so... Maybe because it wasn't as loud and obnoxious as every other time. <laughs> it's a fucking shocker, isn't it? Just saying. Okay, so we're picking up on part two of the Ted Binion murder. Um, and, you know, remember that she was like being really dramatic in, you know, at the house in the hospital when they found his body. Remember? Every woman is. Yeah, well. So then a short time after she arrived at the hospital, Rick showed up and he said that he and he told people that he was a friend of Ted's and Sandy's. And he actually talked to Janice Tano in the waiting room and told her that he was on his way to the airport when he had heard the news about Ted. You just said airport. I did. Airport. Oh, my God. It's the airport. Fucking retard. (laughs) Shut up. It's like the Swedish chef from Muppets. (laughs) And when he had heard the news, because I was was like reading ahead and I mixed up. When I go to Florida. airport. When I fly to Florida or to to South Carolina to see Todd, I'm going to go to the airport. (laughs) You're so stupid. Continue on, Terry. (laughs) So he said that he was on his way to the airport. When he had heard about Ted, and so he wanted to see if there's anything he could do to help Sandy. Um, however, by that time, the Las Vegas Metro Police Detective Jim Mitchell um, was he was conducting one of the general assignment details, and so he had been waiting outside her room to interview. You know, was waiting to interview her. So a few minutes after later. Um, Janice's son arrived, Alex, he came, well, he came out of the room and said that those waiting to see Sandy, that a police interview, you know, that they were conducting a police interview. So it'd be a while. And when he heard, when Rick Tabish heard that, he like promptly said, you know what? I got to go. Um, according to Detective Mitchell's interview, Sandy said that Bit Ted had started using drugs again shortly after he had lost his gaming license and she also said that he had been suicidal. She said that she saw him stick a gun in his mouth when he was high on drugs. And according to her, he went into her bedroom and woke her up in the middle of the night and told her that he was going to try and sleep. But he was afraid and wanted her to watch him. And then this is the interview, you know, transcript from that interview. Was she at the airport when he did the interview? <laughs> no, the they were at the hospital. At the, her- at the hospital? <laughs> I hate you. And they went to the you know, I can never make a blunder speaking when you're around because you will never let me live it down. No, I let you live it down at the airport. Continue on. hate you. So, Mitchell asks her, this is, I'm going back and forth now. Mitchell starts, Sandy, can you tell me what happened this morning up until this afternoon when you found Ted? 
He said that he might be sick, more stuff so he could. And, you know, she kind of trailed off the sentence. And when you say more stuff, what does he mean by more stuff? No, I don't want to. Don't want to. I don't want to mention it, she said. Uh, Sandy, Sandy, just calm down. Sandy, did he? you give him any heroin today? No, I was looking for it for him, and I couldn't find it. He couldn't find it. Sandy, there's a window that's open in your bathroom back in the bedroom where you were in the northwest corner of the house. Can you tell me why that bathroom window is open? I locked myself out last night. I don't have my key, and he was asleep, and he wouldn't answer the door. Now, mind you, she's sobbing this whole time. So, okay, can you tell me why there's a white chair underneath the window? Be- I know why she's sobbing. Why? Because she was looking for the airport, <laughs> and she can only find the airport. She was just, it was, it was a struggles room, man. I, I feel, Sandy, I feel your pain, baby. I feel your pain. Anyways, because I had to stand on the chair because it was locked, referring to the door. Okay, I'm going to ask you again, Sandy. Did you give him any drugs today? I don't, I gave him, he asked me, so I opened his for him. Her crying obviously made it difficult for him to understand the words she was trying to say. What type of pills did you give him? I didn't give them to him. I just brought them to him. And what type of pills? I don't know. He got them from my neighbor. Were they pills that he got from a doctor? My my neighbor's a doctor, and my neighbor used to give him that shit before when we were. And I told him, if you ever give him that stuff again, and he gave him some more last night. I don't know. He gave him more. What's the doctor's name? Dr. Erpert. Dr. Sandy. Shut up. What's the doctor's name, Sandy? He had to repeat that question twice because she didn't answer him. Doc- know, every time you say Sandy, I keep thinking of Grease. I keep I expecting know. you to go, I got, I got, you know, uh, thrills or multiplying. I got chills that That's are multiplying. Or, look at me, I'm Sandra D. <laughs> Lousy with virginity. I used to be able to quote that movie line for line. Used to be, my, it, still my favorite movie. Um, let's see. So she finally answered and she says, Dr. Lacayo, he lives next door to you? Yes. Which house does he live in? Does he live to the west of your house or to the east of your house? Now, I gotta say, the only reason why I know my north, south, east, and west here is basically because I know, you know, where Portland is from my house and everything. But because of the mountains. <laughs> Mount yeah. Hood is to the east and the Tillamook Forest Range is to the west. That's the only way I know. Um, and she goes, the East, and he goes, can you spell his last name for me? L-A-C-A-Y-O. I don't know. Do you know his first name? Yeah. Enrique. And he got some other pills from doctor a couple weeks ago when he tried to get straight. He told me that this is the last time and he wasn't going to do it ever again. When did Dr. Lacayo give him the pills? Last night. (laughs) Did Dr. Lacayo see him last night? I, he had to get him the pill. Yeah, that's stupid. What a stupid fucking question. Yeah. Tell this cop shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what the pills are? Are the pills in his bedroom? Some are. I think Xanax, but he got some other pills. I don't know what they're called. A couple weeks ago from another doctor. Were there any pills left over in the room that we found him in? I don't know. I didn't look. I don't know. 
Sandy, when was the last time you saw him alive? When I left morning the last time I thought he was alive. He looked like he was sleeping. I thought he was sleeping and he wouldn't wake up. He wouldn't wake up. He wouldn't wake up. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And he's the one that she loves. Ooh, 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 darn. The one that she loves. <laughs> Sandy, after you found him. Sandy. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. Sandy, after you found him. I'm so sorry. Did you clean the room after you found him? I put three fingers in my butt. Shut ooh, up. Ooh, ooh, no, Sandy said she didn't she didn't respond, but she just continued to sob. And then the the detective goes, Did you pick anything up in the room? I I I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. I found him and he wouldn't wake up and I panicked and I was trying to make him breathe and he wouldn't breathe. Oh God, oh God, oh God. <laughs> I've Sam, had a lot of women say that I to know, me. I know, right? Sandy, do you remember what time you found him when you came back home? I don't know what time it was. Um, my watch stopped. I don't know what time it is. I don't know. Uh, you said he asked you earlier to sit up with him that night. Do you remember what time that was? I don't know. He woke me up in the middle of the night and wanted me to watch him sleep. Did you see him again after he woke you up in the middle of the night? What did he say to you after he woke you up in the middle of the night? Nothing. He was sleeping. I know, right? He told me that he was going to try to, that he might be sick and he wanted me to watch him sleep. He said he might have a seizure and to please watch him. I should, I should have never left. I should have never left. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so by this time in the interview, Ted was lying on the mattress on the floor. I mean, during the night, the... Ted was allegedly lying on the mattress in the middle of the floor inside the den. And it was kind of odd to Detective Mitchell that, and even maybe contradictory to what, you know, the scenario was, that someone who was suicidal was concerned about having a seizure that they wanted somebody to remain with them. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, and then the detective goes on and says, after he woke up, what did you do? I went and laid with him. Did you fall back asleep? Oh, for a little while, but then when you left the house, he was fine, right? Yes. Well, he was just sleeping. How long were you gone from the house? For a few hours. I don't know. You don't remember what time you left the house? No. Was it in the morning? The morning. And then I came back, and then he was sleeping, and I just laid on the sofa and just watched him sleep for a while. And I was tired because he had kept me up all night. And then I went and got dressed. And then I went to Kathy's. And then I went to, and and then I came home. And I, and he was still sleeping and he wouldn't wake up. Um, By that point, she was just rambling and he couldn't, he wouldn't wake up and I tried to make him breathe and he wouldn't breathe. He wouldn't breathe. He wouldn't breathe. He wouldn't breathe. breathe. I used my vagina as a mask. He still wouldn't breathe. Right. (laughs) Shut up. I don't want fish and chips. I don't want a fish fry. You know what? Stop that. Anyways. So, you know, that was the, that was a transcript of the interview and the prosecutor later referred to this interview <laughs> as her boohoo interview. <laughs> um, so hey, while it goes along with the, uh, with Greece, boo, hoo, hoo, I know, right? So on a side note though, cause you know, you were talking about, you know, obviously, you know, earlier it's like, Oh my God, shut the detective up. Right. I was watching ghost adventures <laughs> and I've been watching some old episodes and they were like investigating this mansion and part of the tale was that this woman had one of the apparitions they supposedly see is a woman who had fallen down the steps and broke her neck and died one of, the, bitch. one of the investigators literally said is that you called out her name did it hurt when you fell what 
Seriously, <laughs> she broke her neck and died. What do you think? No, nah, didn't hurt at all. Happened to me all the time. This time here, I just didn't get up from it. I was just like, seriously? But anyways, fucking that's what brought idiots. to my mind Jesus when you said that Jesus fucking Christ. You don't need ghost adventures there, buddy. You need <laughs> retard adventures and a fucking helmet. <laughs> you need some serious counseling. Okay, so... While Mitchell was interviewing Sandy at the hospital, Rick Tabish actually drove back to Ted's house with one of his associates named Michael Malott. Now, when he arrived there, Richard Wright, who was one of Ted's attorneys, was there when, you know, when they arrived. Um, And according to Wright, he said, I'm just totally shocked. I saw him last night. He was in fine spirits talking about Ted. We talked about the future and what he always talked about looking for a new ranch. He's. He was also looking forward to appealing the Nevada Gaming Commission revocation of his gaming license. He had been a loyal friend for a long time. Then Rick Tabish says, I was on my way to the airport to fly the airport. <laughs> home to my family in Montana in when I stop it. When I heard the news and headed over here. I know he here. was happy his sister took over the casino and he hoped she would do a good job. He was trying to stay out of the limelight, do some more fishing and advance his relationship with his girlfriend. It's just such a tragedy. I never had any bad dealings with the man. What a tragedy. I know he was trying really hard to change his life. So after... Um, Tabish introduced Malat to Wright and explained that Malat was an, his, an executive from his... Uh, MRT transportation business. Um, he also said that the police were interrogating Sandy at the hospital and he asked Wright to go down there and stop the stop the interrogation. However, by the time they got back, the interrogation was over. So meanwhile, at the house, Detective Pat Franks took charge of the seat, you know, the scene after he put in he had already been working a long day and he went, you know, he got assigned this case too. Well, do you hear that? What? Listen. I'm listening. Oh, never mind. It's just an earbud. Oh, my God. I hate you. Anyways. So, you know, you know when a detective <clears throat> arrives on this scene, they start with a preliminary, you know, survey of the whole area, right? Yes. And so he noted that he went over the list of names and everything on the log and, you know, and he entered... And he continued to look around, and he noted that the living room drapes, which hung ceiling to floor, were drawn, causing the room to be completely dark. He then walked through the living room and passed by a grand piano on his way down the hallway that led to the other rooms. Now, during this examination, he, he wanted just to get a feel for the layout of the house, so he found his till he found his way to the southeast den, located a few feet east of the door. Now, lying on the floor were a pair of sunglasses and a set of keys, which he later discovered belonged to Sandy. Um, he also observed that uh, Ted's body was laying face up on the mattress and his head was resting on a pillow. Now, his Ted's arms were at the side of his body and his legs were straight out and he only had on a pair of underwear and an unbuttoned long sleeve shirt. He also noted that a pair of jeans and a pair of loafers were sitting to the left of his knees and an empty bottle labeled Xanax were on the right side. And there was also an open package of Vantage cigarettes. What brand is that? I've never heard of it. I don't know. I've never smoked those. Yeah. I've, I've smoked Camels and I've smoked uh, fucking Marlboros. Yeah. So there were also two disposable lighters and a remote control, <laughs> all of which laid next to Ted's body. But not a crack pipe like Joe Biden's son, Hunter. <laughs> it's amazing. 
Yeah. I know it's not a political show, but I'm still stuck on that shit. <laughs> so although Franks had observed a num- there were a number of firearms in some of the other rooms, there were no weapons in the den. Now, the criminal criminalist. Um, hold on. I disagree with that if that's where his body is. And let me tell you why. Apparently in his pants he had a weapon of mass affection. Oh my goodness. You're disgusting. And he was giving it to every girl at the cheetah. <laughs> that's true. Wow, baby. <laughs> They're so bad. Now, of course, you know, the criminalists were were arrived on the scene so they could process the, you know, everything. And the crime scene analyst, Mike Perkins, examined every door and window and found all of them to be, you know, shut and secured except for that window in the rear bathroom. (laughs) His rear was wide open. uh, Stop it. He also noticed that there was a chair beneath the window outside the house. um, And he... He, uh, he assumed at the time, because they didn't know until after Mitchell interviewed Sandy, that someone had used it to gain entry into the house through the bedroom window. <coughs> now, when, he, when Perkins entered the adjacent bathroom, he discovered what he suspected was narcotics paraphernalia. There was a large knife with brown residue on its blade laying on a small table. Near the knife was what appeared to be a clean piece of aluminum foil and an ashtray. He also found what looked like a small piece of a red rubber balloon on the floor next to the table. And then when he looked in the trash can, he found another piece of a pink balloon, as well as several pieces of crumbled up aluminum foil. He suspected that the brown substance on the knife was heroin and reasoned that the aluminum foil in the garbage had been cupped and formed into a spoon to smoke the drug. Um, so he, you know, bagged it all up, marked it and took to go to the crime lab now as the evening wore on um investigators and analysts continued to work and friends and associates of ted showed up to the house to find out what what had happened one of those who showed up was the famous defense attorney oscar goodman um who also who later became mayor of las vegas um but his claim to fame was defending mobsters in court and it's he he said at the time, this is a sad, sad time. He was one of the best guys I ever met. Now, Becky, his sister, arrived also, and she wanted to know what happened to her brother. And she talked to um, Sergeant Jim Young, who told her that Binion's death was considered suspicious, but they could not say where the foul play was involved. He told her that, at, you know, from what they could tell, the scene indicated that it was not intentional. But he did go on to say, we're not 100% certain that it was accidental or intentional, but there is no evidence to make us believe it was intentional. He also said that the investigators had reason to believe that he had been taking prescription medication for possible stress-related issues and said that he had found an empty bottle of Xanax next to Ted's body. According to Becky, she goes, that is not Ted. She told the investigators that he had, she had never known him to take prescription drugs. And he would be the first one to say, I'm a heroin junkie. Um, then the investigators said that, there, that it was his heroin and cocaine use that caused his problems with the gaming commission. Um, but during his fight to retain his license, he continuously insisted that he had remained drug-free and he had the results of more than 160 drug tests that backed him up. However, there was one time when he showed up to take a drug test when he had sha- he had like completely shaved his body and his head, so it was impossible then for the for them to remove hair samples to administer the drug test. Um, 
Now, when they brought up his mental state and the possibility he committed suicide, his sister said, nope, not happening. I talked to him all week. He was not despondent. He would never take his own life. She also said that Ted had been fighting with Sandy all week, and he said that he still wanted to one day get his... um, to get his share of the horseshoe back and return to the business he loved. He was one of the most knowledgeable people in the gaming industry, according to her. Um, Okay. But um, even though his sister said, uh, tried to get the police to treat her brother's death as a homicide, there really, at that point, there was no evidence to support that investigation, that line of investigation. If there were going to be answers that led toward homicide, those answers would only come through an autopsy. So as the investigators continued... Sorry. As the investigators continued their work through the night of September 17th at the house, it was busy with, you know... Crime scene technicians coming in and out and everything. And one of uh, Michael Perkins, the analyst from earlier, he noted that outside above the entrance to the house, keep in mind this is September 17th, okay? Above the entrance to the front door, (coughs) there was a Halloween decoration that read R.I.P. You know, rest in peace. Yeah, I know what R.I.P. means. Most people do. I'm just clarifying for some people who don't. Making life easy for people. Now, he thought it was awfully odd that there was such a decoration outside a, m- a little over a month and a half before Halloween, which he, s- he noted it in his report, and no one had, had the time to pay it much thought because of all the other work they were doing. However, as he went from room to room looking for more clues um, as to what might have happened, he found another identical decoration inside the house. So he asked himself... Had Ted been preparing for Halloween that early? Or was this a cruel joke perpetrated by someone with a morbid sense of humor? Oh, that's fine. Okay, here's the thing, though. I have Halloween decorations in my house right now. 24-7. Yeah. You're like a redneck woman with Christmas lights. Fuck, yes, I am. I got my Jack Skellington. He's hanging uh, off to my right. I've got a fucking... Um, the zombie thing. You got the skeleton door knocker. Beware of zombies. Yeah, I've got a skeleton door knocker. Oh, not anymore. Where the fuck that clown Pez dispenser that freaks me out every time I see it. Yeah, I got Halloween shit and scary shit all over my place. And I'll yeah. sit there and go, oh, that's odd. It's a mu- Dude, mine's year-round. Shut your fucking ass to sit down, bitch. Be making fun yeah. of people. I, but you know what? I bet you wouldn't be bitching if somebody's had happy, oh, happy holidays or Merry Christmas. Exactly. They can leave their Christmas lights on 24-7, 365, and nobody cares. Nobody would care. Now, fuck this guy. I, I, already, I don't like this cop already. Fuck him. Okay. So at another point, Perkins noticed that someone had disabled Ted's burglar alarm by removing some of the wiring. Now, he didn't know whether Ted had done it himself or whether someone else had done it. Perhaps for their own sinister reason. Okay, now that's suspicious. That is suspicious. So one thing he did know was certain was that this was a strange case, and it was becoming even more strange. Stranger. Um, Stranger danger. Yeah, so as they continued to analyze the scene where Ted's body was found, and they started to discuss it um, the way it was discovered, the investigators felt that his body was left in a position that was inconsistent with a manner in which most bodies are found. It seemed that uh, to James, to Detective James Buzik, B-U-C... But shit? Buzik? B-U... Buxik? B-U-C-Z-E-K. I have no idea. Dude, if your name is that, change it. <laughs> I know, right? Christ, fucking Polak. <laughs> 
he had been on the force for 10 years and he had been brought into the case as the lead investigator. Um, and they felt that Ted's body and the crime scene had been well cleaned prior to anything being reported. It rubs a lotion on the skin. <laughs> Shut up. But he got the hose again. Shut up. He got a lot of hose. He was at the sheet all the time. That's right. Hoe after hoe. <laughs> so in the manner in which the body was found was a contrast. It, you know, significantly contrasted any other, you know, death by drug overdose they had investigated in the past, whether it was accident or suicide. Usually in these kind of cases, there's signs of heavy purging or vomiting from the victim. But in Ted's case, there were only traces of such evidence in the immediate area. They were also uncomfortable because of the way his body was laying when they arrived. He was on his back, his head resting peacefully on a pillow, and his arms lying straight at his side. Strangely, it seemed like his body had been deliberately placed by somebody in like that mortuary-style position. I like that position for all my girls. I know you do. That's why I break into the morgue every once in a while. You know, crack a cold one. You're disgusting. Often when someone has succumbed to death by poisoning or drug overdose, the victim goes into convulsions. Um, they didn't appear to be the case here, and they wondered why. To the two detectives, a scene looked like it had been staged, proving it they knew would be a, a totally different matter. Now, even though Becky continued to say that her husband had been murdered, the detectives knew that the facts of the case at this point didn't support that, that line of investigation. And even though there were many circumstances that appeared to be highly suspicious. Um, in order to get... Because Jack, his, uh, Ted's brother, was not happy with that answer as well. So he wanted to know what really happened. So he actually hired a private detective right away. At another point, the detectives noticed that the audio cassette tapes had been removed from the telephone answering machine, um, and they were missing. Why would anyone remove the tapes from the answering machine and when such devices can easily be turned off or disconnected? Now, at 2 a.m. on Saturday, September 19th, barely two days later, uh, Nye County Sheriff's Department Sergeant Ed Howard was out on a routine patrol when he received a call from Detective Steve Huggins, who said that, who told Howard to drive back and check on Ted's vault next to the, you know, the Terrible Town Casino. There have been reports of a disturbance at the site. When Howard arrived a short time later, followed by another patrol officer, um, you know, Deputy Dean Pennock, that's his name. He, they both noticed that two pickup trucks, an excavator, lots of dust, and three men, one of whom was operating a heavy machinery at the side of the vault. He also noted that there was a tractor with a trailer used for hauling heavy equipment and a belly dump truck. What's a belly dump truck? I used to haul those. Uh, they, uh, so you, I'd have to oh, are those the ones that look like grain silos yeah, in the middle? Yeah, they open up in the, in, in the middle. And, and they have that thing? Okay. Yeah, it's a belly dump. I got you. Now I understand. As he turned off Highway 160 and into the area of the vault, he observed that a man operating the excavator was attempting to smooth out the dirt that had been disturbed near the road. He also noted that two men he would later identify as Rick Tabish and David Matson, standing by as the other man, Michael Malott, operated the excavator. Wondering what these men could possibly be doing at the hour of the morning, he parked his car, but before he could get out, Matson approached the vehicle. 
We'll be done here in a few minutes, Matson said, as he leaned into the patrol car. We're just moving some stuff. Matson explained that they were cleaning up some ordnance that had been stored on the property. Where's Wade, Matson asked, referring to Sheriff Wade Le- Le- Lesky. He explained to Howard that he had spoken to Lesky early and that Lesky was aware of what they were doing. Then Tabish walked up to the car and repeated, you know, that they would be done shortly. He said that they were removing concrete from the site because the property was being sold to the Herps family. He also said um, that he had spoken to Sheriff Lesky and that everything is okay, that the sheriff knows we're doing this. He, um, according to Howard, he, he said how Ted had, had told Sergeant Steve Huggins to keep an eye on the vault for him and wondered why Matson had told him that they were moving ordnance and why Tabish had told him that they were removing concrete. Decided that he'd better have a look for himself. So he got out and, you know, started going towards the tractor trailer. Um, he asked, what's inside the big truck? Nothing. Howard didn't believe, Tabish said nothing. So Howard didn't believe him. So one look at the truck and can see that it was nearly buckling under the weight. So he and Deputy Pinnock climbed up and pulled back the tarp that covered it. Inside, they saw a huge stash of silver bars and coins. One look was all it took for him to know that it was Ted's buried fortune. Um, Pinnock said, there's a shitload of silver in there. And he was, as he was staring at the boxes of silver and Howard looked towards Tabish for an explanation. And that's when Tabish said, okay, I lied. <laughs> Just like matter of fact, okay, I lied. Yeah, you're already busted. Yeah, whenever. That's when he told Howard that he was Ted's good friend who had built the vault for him. And he said that Ted told him that if anything happened to him, he should retrieve the silver, move it to the ranch, or take it to Los Angeles, liquidate it, and deposit the money he got for it in a trust account for uh, for Bonnie, his daughter. Now, Tabish repeated that he had spoken to Sheriff Lesky about what he was doing and insisted that everything was okay. He said that he had tried calling the ranch to let security know that they were bringing over the silver, but insisted that he couldn't get through to anybody. He said that he presumed that the phones had been cut off by the estate. And Howard wondered why he just didn't drive over there and ask his security guard to let him in. After all, it was all if it was all on the up and up, the security would have been notified in advance of what was happening. Right now, Sergeant Steve Huggins arrived at the scene a little while later, and it was decided between the officers that Sheriff Leslie should be called and asked to come out to the site. Maybe they thought he could clear things up. So while they waited for him to arrive, Tavish continued to talk to the two lawmen and said that he had been at Ted's house on the day he died. And he said, uh, talked a little bit about um, Ted's addiction to heroin and the plans he had made to kick his habit. He said, Ted told me that he was going to take a whole bottle of Xanax tablets and lay down to go to sleep. And when he woke up, his body would be cleansed of all the drugs. Yeah, that doesn't happen. That's not how this works. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I mean, I don't know anybody who can take a whole bottle of Xanax and wake up that quickly. I mean, I take two. I'm down for three days. Um, according to the police, Tabish also stated that Ted had authorized a payment of up to $100,000 to Lesky for allowing him to excavate the vault and retrieve the silver. When Lesky arrived, he was briefed by the two officers on site. <laughs> about what had happened and then he went to go talk to Rick himself. He he goes, "You told me that you were a business partner of Ted's and that you were coming out here to pick up your property." Tavish quickly denied saying that he was uh Ted's business partner and insisted 
that he had told Lesky that he had business dealings with Ted. Tabish also denied that he had said that the property belonged to him himself and said that Lesky had told him that he could come out and take the stuff. Lesky said, I never said that. <laughs> he said, um, and then, um, let's see. Oh, so Tabish said, Wade, I told you that we were going to take care of you as soon as we were done with this. Then after that statement, they were all arrested <laughs> And booked on burglary, grand larceny, attempted grand larceny, suspicion of theft, attempted embezzlement, and conspiracy to commit larceny, commit grand larceny. And jaywalking. Yeah. The three men were each held on $100,000 bail. Uh, now, proper police procedures, you know, after following proper procedures, Steve Huggins performed an inventory on the contents of each of the vehicles left at the scene. One of the vehicles, a 1995 silver and teal Chevy with Montana license plates, was registered to Rick Tabish. Um, he also determined that David Matson had been seen driving the truck a few weeks before Ted's death, which would establish a link between Matson and Tabish that dated back farther in time than the investigators had originally thought. Because of Ted's death, the alleged silver theft, and Matson's criminal record, it would be a point that would require more investigation. Then Huggins discovered a briefcase inside one of the other vehicles, and inside he found a newsletter for a coin collector and a combination for a safe, which he assumed was Binion's safe. He also found a handwritten note to Rick Tabish that was signed, Love You, Sandy. P.S. I love my lover. If you want to be my lover, the plot thickens. Now, the chief medical examiner of Clark County, Dr. Larry Sims, um, was conducting the autopsy. Um, he noted when he started that Ted's unclothed body, as it lay on the cold table, um, it was his job to perform the autopsy as well as collect blood samples and other bodily fluid samples that might be used as evidence in the event that this death became a criminal case. So during the external part of the postmortem autopsy, he noted the presence of beard stubble on Ted's face, and he guessed that he hadn't shaved for a day or more. And he also noted that Ted had a condition known as pectus excavatum, where his chest looks like a small bowl, right? Where it like, curves inward. Concave, yeah, concave. Chest. Yeah. So that condition caused the sternum to depress and the ribs to grow inward toward the spine, giving the appearance that the ribs and surrounding tissue had caved in and never returned to their normal position. He also noted the presence of substantial lividity which is, you know, for those who don't know, it's the settling of blood after death. On the right side of Binion's body, including his right arm and the right side of his face. That would mean that he He was on die. his right side. Yeah, he wasn't laying on his Exactly. Back. That's what I was getting at. So that observation led Sims to believe that he had been lying on his right side for a minimum of four hours prior to his body being discovered on its back. His belief was based on prior experience in medical literature that suggests that the time frame could have been from six to eight hours, actually. Now, because he also observed fully developed lividity on his back, he concluded that Binion had likely been laying in that position on his back for an additional two to three hours before his body was discovered or reported, which raised the question of whether his body had been moved by someone after his death or, you know, before the paramedics arrived. Now, as he continued the external examination, Sims also noted a small circular erosion in the center of ch Ted's chest. 
The faint discoloration, nearly a half inch in diameter and about the size of a small button. He observed also two fresh bruises on the right side of Ted's body and on the back area, prompting him to believe that they had been caused by recent blunt force trauma. He also noted that there was postmortem discoloration and skin sloughing in the area of his mouth. And he said that the cause could have been a result of chemicals or regurgitation of bodily fluids, but otherwise considered it unremarkable. He also observed a small patterned abrasion on the posterior side of, you know, outside of red of Ted's right wrist that consisted of superficial lines and measured nearly one half inch in dimension. There were also several single superficial scratches up to three and one third inches in length pressed together in the proximity of that pattern abrasion. Now, when he opened up the body to do the internal, you know, with the Y incision to do the internal, he observed a one inch hemorrhage in the left chest. The tongue, epiglottis and larynx showed no evidence of before death injury and the hyoid bone was intact. So he wasn't choked. Hyoid. Hyoid. That's what I said, didn't you I? You said hyoid. Oh. I Plus, I if you had regurgitated, there would have been. Some skin sloughing throughout the esophagus. And right, soft that's palate. what I was thinking too. Yeah, the, the mouth, the soft palate, uh, you know, all your soft tissues. So you have the soft palate, you have, um, you know, your your, your cheeks. Gum right, worn. but they're saying that the, the, the way there was no evidence of injury prior to his death. So I took that to mean that, you know, he wasn't like choked or, you know, right, right, but that, poisoned. Or, it doesn't sound like he really vomit if he did yeah. it was such a minute amount that i don't think that he would have um he would have he wouldn't have aspirated right anything like that it's just this is just getting bizarre. the the autopsy weirder and weirder yeah the autopsy is just really weird cuz you know if you got lividity on your right side obviously you laid on your right side after death then if you have it, then if you have a residual lividity yeah rigor in the back yeah in the back that means that Somehow you wound up on your back. Now that could be because Sandy laid next to him, and when she got up, he went flop, flopped on his back. You don't know, right? But I'm kind of curious of how that happened because I mean, there's, I'm sure there's natural ways for that to happen. Yeah, it's just I find this all it, now the the scarring, well, not the scarring, but the marks um, and abrasions on his wrist. Maybe he wore bracelets or a yeah. watch. Yeah, that could do it too. And maybe somebody removed the watch. That could be. Okay, that doesn't mean that anybody killed him. It just means somebody removed the fucking watch. Right. Um, you know, so there's there's natural reasons and natural cause for that. Right. Um, my biggest concern, though, is that lividity. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. It's like that just, you know, makes no sense. Because they went through great lengths to say that he was found laying flat on his back. Right, right, right. You know? So, um... But he noted because because the hyoid bone, there did I say it right, was intact and because there were no bruises or ligature marks on his neck, he could safely rule out strangulation as a cause of death. Plus, no ocular petechiae. He didn't mention anything about ocular Yeah, I didn't mention anything about ocular petechial hemorrhaging. Yeah, or ocular petechiae. Yeah. So he also examined his esophagus. He found nothing unusual. However, his stomach content consisted of 40 milliliters of a gray brown fluid, but there was no digested food as part of his stomach's contents, nor was there any food particles present. He also collected the gray brown fluid from the stomach and he took samples of the peripheral blood, heart blood, 
vitreous humor and liver tissue. Because Ted was known to smoke tar heroin, he also collected samples of lung tissue for further testing. Now, when the collected samples were sent to an outside pathology lab, it was determined that there was no trace of heroin in the lung tissue. The finding did not mean that Ted had not smoked heroin sometime in the past, but it was an indication that he had not smoked it recently. Yeah. At least not in the hours or perhaps even days prior to his death. I'd probably go weeks. Yeah, so would I with, you know. Because given that, you know, things, like like I'm a smoker and I've got tar in my lungs and it's been there. And it's going to be there even if I don't smoke for the rest of my life. Yeah. It's going to be there. Yeah, because even after my dad quit smoking, every time he got pneumonia, they would, you know, aspirate his lungs and they'd pull that black crap out. It was yeah. gross. So, I mean, you're talking yeah. heroin. And they're, they're, so, I mean, it could be a week or a month since he smoked heroin. Mm, that's true. Now, the results of the toxicology tests on the fluids that were collected from his stomach, though, revealed the concentration of morphine of 1,755 milligrams per milliliter of blood. And then, um, this is going to be, I hate this. Then there was 13,317 milligrams per milliliter of blood of 6-monogacetyl morphine, which is a metabolite of heroin. Yep. And then 81 milligrams per milliliter of blood of codeine and 872 milligrams per milliliter of blood of alprazolam, which is Xanax. That's a shit ton of opiates, man. That's a shit ton of Jesus dope, Christ, man. Yeah. With no food in the system, too? Well, the, 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 just the, the Xanax as an opiate by itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sounds to me like a lethal dose without having anything to help it metabolize, you know, yeah. like any food. Hey, you had the codeine and everything else to it. Jesus Christ, yeah. man. You got morphine, all kinds of shit. In Hell yeah. Well, in the morphine alone, I mean. Yeah, the morphine alone, I th- I, it sounds I mean, like it would be a lethal dose. Yeah, because know, I know they have put me on morphine after surgery, and I have to be told to breathe. <laughs> you need to breathe now. Happened to me both of my surgeries. Yeah, like I, I wake up in the uh, in the recovery room and I breathe, Mister Alexander. Like, ooh, ooh, yeah, okay, I'll breathe. I'd be like, because I remember waking up one time. I go, "What is that noise?" Because you hear this bonk, 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 and they're like, "You need to breathe right now." I know it's getting kind of. Um, so as a result of the toxicology test revealing the high concentrations of heroin and Xanax, it's clear that he either ate the heroin and Xanax or nasally ingested it. Doctor, it was of Doctor Sims' opinion that Ted died with one, within one to two hours after ingesting the drugs, regardless of how he he took them in. Now, medical literature regarding oral heroin overdose has shown that death has occurred from significantly smaller amounts being ingested than the amounts found in his stomach. It's also significant to note that through all of his years of drug use, he was never known to snort, snort heroin or eat it. He preferred to smoke it. The fact that such a large quantity of heroin was found in his stomach served to lend credence to his death being investigated as suspicious. Although Dr. Sims couldn't determine a precise time of death, it was his opinion based on the lividity on the right side of Ted's body that he had died sometime between 5.30 a.m. and noon on Thursday, the 17th. He narrowed the time gap by stating that he believed that Binion probably died between 5.30 a.m. and 10 a.m. And his official conclusion was that Binion died because of a lethal dose of heroin and Xanax. You just keep I on know, tumbling. I know, tied. Because, you know, 
Where am I? Okay. Now, Dr. Ellen Clark, the deputy me- medical examiner with the Washoe County Coroner's Office in Reno. Washoe talking about me. Yeah, Washoe. The Washoe Club. I'd like to go there. I hear it's haunted. Was asked to review all of the autopsy records. And after she related that it was her opinion that ben- Ted's body was moved and cleaned by someone after he died. She said that the abrasions on his face near his mouth were consistent with the face having been vigorously rubbed or cleaned. Which differed from Dr. Sims' opinion that there was nothing remarkable regarding the sloughing by his mouth. She also stated that the absence of purge or vomit on his body on his body suggested to her that it had been cleaned up. It is possible, she said, that changes in the postmortem lividity and pressure patterns on his face could have been the result of substantial blunt trauma in the injuries to his body. Oh, wait, blunt trauma in the forms of sustained pressure subjected to his face, perhaps during cleaning. And she also said the injuries to his body, specifically the ones to his face, wrist, and chest, were features of postmortem trauma and therefore also suggested somebody had moved his body after he died, but before uh, any of the emergency personnel arrived. She believed that his body was moved after death from a face-down position to a face-up position. Now, as part of uh, Dr. Sims' in- as part of his inquiry into the death, Dr. Sims went to the you know, the Binion's house. And as he walked through the house, he noticed from the dining room, which is adjacent to the main living area, that French doors opened onto a veranda that led to a large backyard and pool area. The French doors were the doors where a gardener, Tom Loveday, first observed Ted's dogs on the day of his death. The same doors that the disturbed dogs couldn't gain entry through and wouldn't leave alone. When he entered the den from the marble floor dining room, he noticed from a point from that point where the marble floor ended and turned into carpeting, several dry droplets on the carpeting that he recognized as gastric contents. They ran in a linear manner and didn't stop until they reached the area where his body was found, which was yet another suggestion that his body had been moved to the location where it was discovered, probably dragged there. Although Dr. Sims had early observed some discoloration inside uh, Ted's lower eyelids during the autopsy, it was his opinion that these did not consist of petechial hemorrhaging, which are the telltale, you know, blood dots after when somebody's being suffocated. He also noted that he did not find any fibers or anything else that would indicate that the drugs had been force-fed to Ted, nor did he find any other evidence that Ted had been suffocated, even though he considered Ted's death suspicious, lacking any substantial evidence at the scene that would indicate foul play. Dr. Sims' official opinion was the cause of death was that Ted Binion had died as a result of drug intoxication due to an overdose. Um, okay. As... In any investigation, you know, there's one question always leads to another question as the detectives run down their leads in their attempt to establish what really happened and to find the truth. One question for one of the detectives and his fellow, you know, and the fellow ones was that was that of the possible romantic relationship that they were beginning to believe existed between Sandy and Rick. Because the information that was being funneled to the Binion family and Ted Binion's estate, in part through the efforts of a private investigator, the trail soon led one of the detectives to a posh hotel and lifestyles of Beverly Hills, California. As he followed that trail to Southern California, he learned that on September 11, 1998, the Friday prior to Ted's death, 
a Mr. and Mrs. Rick Tabish checked into the Peninsula Hotel on Little Santa Monica Boulevard. And the woman calling herself Mrs. Tabish registered the couple into the hotel and signed the guest registration S.M. Tabish. Upon checking in, she requested a room with a jacuzzi and ordered a bottle of bar- Barbarisco? I don't know. Wine and two dozen long stem red roses. Why would you order yourself roses? She told the clerk that the wine and the roses were a surprise right, for her husband. I mean, who, That's not even romantic, man. What you, woman gives roses to her husband? You know what is ro- romantic? Instead of roses? Two Asian girls? No. Two lips on my organ. You're so disgusting. <laughs> um, Your mom doesn't mind. Whatever. When the detective checked the guest registration card, he compared the signatures S.M. Tabish to other signatures of Sandy... Sandy Murphy that he had obtained and it was his opinion that they matched. And upon interviewing the employees, he learned that the couple he now believed were in fact, you know, Rick and Sandy had entered a cabana um, the next day. Was it a Coca Cabana? <laughs> from Manilow? I hate you. Because I'm a fan of low. I hate I hate Manilow. They also rented a cabana the next day and ordered massages of both of them in their room for that evening. When he examined the chart slips for the cabana rentals and the massages, he noted that S.M. Tabish had again signed them. Through the assistance of a detective, Les Zoller, the Beverly Hills PD, this dete- the Vegas detective was able to determine through interviews with the cabana and sm- spa supervisor that Sandy Murphy was indeed the person that she had served during the couple's stay at the hotel. And the hotel supervisor identified Sandy Murphy as a person she knew as Mrs. Tabish from a photo lineup. Um, similarly, Detective Zoller contacted the masseuse who performed the massages after showing the masseuse photos of the couple. They, that person positively identified both of them as the people who received the massages. Now, with the romantic link between Sandy and Rick now even more established, Detectives thought out other possible witnesses who might be able to corroborate the new information. One of the people he contacted was Sandy's friend, Linda Carroll. According to Linda, Sandy had confided to her that she had gone to Beverly Hills with Rick and that the two of them had stayed at the peninsula. She also said, saw a photograph of Sandy and Rick posing together in what she termed an affectionate pose. In the detective's mind, there was no longer any doubt that Sandy and Rick were romantically involved. At a time when Sandy was still living with Ted. It also appeared that Sandy was spending Ted's money to pay for her and Rick's weekend. Um, The detective soon learned that the trip that Sandy and Rick had made to Beverly Hills in September had not been their first. Through the assistance of detectives in Beverly Hills, he learned that they had checked into the Beverly Hills Hotel, which was another posh exclusive establishment, on August 8th of that year. And similar to the trip in September, the guest registration records were signed by a Miss S. Tabish. And they had rented a single room with a deluxe king-size bed. And they had drinks in the polo lounge. And all the charge slips were um, signed by S. S. Tabish. The next morning, though, according to the hotel records a telephone call had been placed from their room to ted's house in vegas although it was not known or determined that what was said during the telephone call or whether it had been rick or sandy who had made the call it was an important link or factor in establishing the caller's connection with ted and helped solidify the identification process by showing that they were indeed in beverly hills and had made or at least had attempted to make contact with ted by calling his house they had also rented a poolside cabana for the day 
which was again signed by Sandy Murphy, aka Sandy Tabish, and the poolside cafe server who positively identified them as the couple. Now, if there had been any doubt in the detective's mind that uh, Sandy and Rick were romantically involved before Ted's death, that was now completely gone. He was satisfied that he and his fellow detectives had uncovered sufficient evidence to prove the relationship existed. Now all he had to do was tie them to Ted's death. And given enough time, he felt confident he could do it. Now, this is the last part, and then I'll end. Um, When he investigated further, he learned additional information that showed Ted had become even more suspicious that Sandy... um, was cheating on him than investigators had originally thought. The detective discovered that Ted had sought the assistance of a surveillance expert on Saturday, September 12th, only five days prior to his death, the weekend that Sandy and Rick were in Beverly Hills. He, according to the detective, Ted had previously hired Brad Perry to install a video surveillance system at his Palomino Lane house, and that's... Surveillance system consisted of eight cameras situated on the outside of the house and each connected to a telephone monitor, a television monitor, excuse me, in his den and another in his bedroom. And the entire system was connected to a video recorder. The surveillance system had worked fine up until the point of his death. Now, Ted had seen a truck parked outside his home and was concerned that Sandy may have had contact with the truck's owner or driver. When he tried to view the surveillance tapes, he discovered that there was something wrong with the system and he called Perry because he had installed it and was familiar with how it operated. The buttons were all jammed like somebody had deliberately pressed them all down at once and they became stuck. Now, Ted also asked Perry to see if he could get the recorder to play the tape, but he too was unable to do so. He told Ted that he would have to take it into the shop for repairs. Now, the detective recalled that when technicians had processed Ted's house following his death, they had found that several wires had been disconnected from the security system, making it inoperable for its intended purposes. He considered that that the fact that Perry had been in the process of removing the system from Ted's house at the time might serve to explain why the technicians had found several of the wires removed. It didn't, however, explain the damage that had been done to the recorder. According to the detective, the detective also learned that Ted had asked Perry if he could install a hidden recording device on Sandy's telephone so that he could monitor all of her calls. And he, Perry told him that he could and said that he would need to buy the equipment. And Ted told him, you know, gave him the money to make the purchase. And when Perry returned to Ted's house on Tuesday, September 15th, to finish disconnecting the surveillance recorder so that he could take it to his shop, Sandy returned from her trip to California and was home when Perry had arrived. She made it known to him that she was aware that he and Ted had been attempting to view the surveillance tapes, and she indicated that she knew what was on them and did not say what information they contained. When she returned from her trip from Beverly Hills, uh, Ted suspected that Sandy had been cheating on him and confronted her about where she had been all weekend. She told him that she had been in California visiting relatives, but he did not believe her. So while inside the Ted's house, Perry noted that someone, presumably Sandy, had installed or had hired someone to install audio recording devices that would allow her to monitor all the phone calls from Ted's house. The tape recorders that were connected to those recording devices were found inside Sandy's bedroom. Perry removed the surveillance recorder and took it with him. 
As a result, the surveillance system was out of commission for the next couple of days, including the day that Ted died. So with the system now useless for all, you know, for whatever reason, there were no surveillance tapes for the police to use in determining who came and went the night that Ted on the night before Ted died or on the day of his death. And they were left wondering whether that recorder had been deliberately damaged to prevent its use on the days in question. Um, so that's the end of part dos. Fabulous. All right, boys and girls, remember you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and uh, check out Citizens of Brutal Nation. Log on and join and interact with us. This show is copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, the Lion, Thieving Bastards. Bastards. And we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.